Yes, our first reading is taken from Isaiah 24, which is on page 707. It's Isaiah 24, page 707. See, the Lord is going to lay waste to the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. And exalted uh, of the earth, the exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up, and very few are left. The new wine dries up, and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The city, the ruined city, lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All gaiety is banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins. Its gate is battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten or when the gleanings are left after the grape harvest. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear singing, Glory to the righteous one. But I said, I waste away, I waste away, woe to me. The treacherous betray, uh, betray. with treachery the treacherous betray. Terror and pit and snare await you, O people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. The floodgates of the heavens are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is thoroughly shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavenly, so heavily upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers and the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners abound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. The moon will be abashed the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously.
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And keep your Bibles open at the same page. We continue straight into Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done marvellous things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled under him as straw is trampled down in the manure. They will spread out their hands in it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. This is the word of the Lord. So just as we begin, let's pray. Lord, these words are awesome in many ways. And we ask that as a result of reading and listening this morning, we would have a right awe and respect for you. And indeed, we would be able to say with God's people, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. And we ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Well, um, as Charles said, the title of this sermon is God's Triumph Over Evil. And the Bible's word for this is salvation. So chapter 25, verse 9, the verse we began the service with, in that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And my prayer is that over the next few minutes, um, by the end of the sermon, we will all be able to say with God's people, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. We'll, and we'll be thrilled by what we hear. 
As uh, each reader finished, they said, this is the word of the Lord. And I heard a rather kind of half-hearted, thanks be to God. Really? (laughs) Thanks be to God for all this death and destruction. Um, But because we're well-trained Anglicans, we say thanks be to God. But I wonder if in our heart of hearts we're thinking, really? But I hope that by the end we will be singing, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. So what do Christians mean when they talk about salvation? Well, it's salvation from something and salvation for something. And often I think Christians underestimate what salvation is all about. They see it just in terms of forgiveness of sin or having a fulfilled life or being at peace in times of trouble. And yes, salvation wonderfully includes all those things. But there's so much more to it than that. And I think there's a danger that if we have a limited view of salvation, we'll have a limited view of God. And if we have a limited view of God, then we'll start to fear other things rather than to fear God himself. And we'll trust other things and other people rather than trusting in God. Now, Isaiah's vision of salvation is big. It's very big. And this morning, I just have two simple points Salvation from what and salvation for what? Because they're really two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. So, for example, um, a child might use the word saved when he says, saved by the bell. That means he is saved from the maths test and he's saved for kicking a ball around in the playground. The boxer is saved by the bell. He's saved from a pummeling, and he's saved for the refreshment of the wet sponge. The drowning swimmer is saved from death for life. You're saved from something for something else. So first, salvation from what? We are saved from judgment and destruction. Salvation from what? We are saved from judgment and destruction. And the text for this point is all of chapter 24 and most of chapter 25. It's rather a bleak read. To talk about the judgment of God is not very politically correct. We're happy for Christians to talk about salvation if it includes things like God's love, eternal life, rescue, But in the Bible, whenever God rescues his people, that rescue or that salvation always involves the destruction of his enemies. So Noah, back in Genesis, he's saved by God. But those who reject God are destroyed. In the story of Moses, the Israelites are saved as they pass through the Red Sea. But the Egyptians are drowned. Joshua enters the promised land with God's people. They're gloriously, finally, in God's own country. But that involves the defeat of the Canaanites. Well, some people will say, well, that's just the Old Testament for you. It's not like that in the New Testament. Well, not so. Mary in the Magnificat, as Jesus' arrival is first announced, she says, He, God, has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And 
has lifted up the lowly. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 10, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Salvation involves destruction and judgment. You cannot have VE Day without first having D-Day. When you think about it, we are hardwired for justice. One of the very first phrases that most children learn to say is, it's not fair. When you discover a huge dent in your car in the supermarket, car park, and no note has been left on the windscreen, you're furious because you'll have to pay. The guilty have got away with it. It's not fair. When the prisoner is released on a technicality and the guilty walk free, we say, it's not fair. When the insurgents walk into a church in Iraq and set fire to it and shoot dead men, women and children, and they move on unchecked to the next village, we say, it's not fair. We're hardwired for justice. Our hearts cry out for justice. The guilty deserve judgment. It's right that they're punished. And this is the big point, basically, that Isaiah is making in chapters 24 and 25. God, in saving, by definition, judges. We've all just said, as we said the creed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Judgment's a major tenet of the Christian faith. It's integral to salvation. And Isaiah 24 and 25 says that God's total, final, absolute, irresistible destruction of his enemies will be just and certain. And for anyone who is at all concerned about right prevailing, well, they must be glad that that judgment will come from a good and fair and holy God. Just notice various things about God's judgment that are outlined here, often repeatedly. Chapter 24, verse 2, God's judgment is absolute. All will be affected. 24, verse 2, it will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, mistress as for maid, for seller as buyer, borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. All will be affected. There won't be any diplomatic immunity on judgment day. There won't be any parliamentary privilege. Verse 3, the earth will be completely laid waste. Chapter 25, verse 2, the city, that's Babylon, will become a heap of rubble that will never be rebuilt. Hiroshima was rebuilt. It's just 70 years this week that uh, Dresden was bombed. That's been rebuilt. London was rebuilt. But when God destroys... It will never be rebuilt. His judgment is absolute. Second, his judgment is carefully planned. Look at uh, chapter 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. In your perfect faithfulness, you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. And what has God planned long ago? Verse 2, you've made the city a heap of rubble. 
That's what he's praising God for. The judgment of God was planned right at the beginning. In fact, we have to go right back to Genesis chapter 3, where God promises he will crush Satan. He says that Satan will one day finally be defeated. And this promise is repeated throughout the Bible. It's carefully planned. Thirdly, God's judgment will be a source of misery. Back in chapter 24, verses 7 to 9, the new wine dries up and the vine withers, all the merrymakers groan, the gaiety of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the revelers has stopped, the joyful harp is silent. Beer is bitter to its drinkers. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've, I've met people who say, well, frankly, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go where all my mates are going to be. I'd be much happier in the other place. Well, this, this is telling us that there is no happiness in the other place. There is no camaraderie. There will be no mates. They may be there, but there is no matiness. Verse 11, all joy turns to gloom. All gaiety is banished from the earth. We mustn't be fooled. The Bible's quite clear. Over half of Jesus' parables are on the subject of either judgment or heaven and hell and the need to be right with God. And Jesus describes those who are judged as going to a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God's judgment will be a source of misery. But fourth, God's judgment is also a source of joy. Chapter 25, verse 1 again. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. You've done marvelous things. God is to be praised because justice is done. There is a day set when there will be no more temptation, when there'll be no more sin, no more suffering, sadness, and sorrow. There'll be no more proud pretense by arrogant humanity setting itself up against its creator. And Satan will be utterly destroyed forever. And the whole book of Isaiah anticipates the coming of this figure, Emmanuel, God with us, who will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. And that great Christmas reading that we have year after year from Isaiah chapter 9 sees that child as destroying those who stand against God. And the rest of Isaiah develops the picture of this child as the suffering servant in chapters 40 to 55, and finally as the warrior king in 56 to 66. And that's just how it is with Jesus in the Gospels. He begins his ministry with a battle against Satan in the wilderness, and Jesus wins hands down. Later, Jesus announces, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Just before his crucifixion in John chapter 12, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world, Satan, will be cast out. And Paul, looking back on Jesus' death, describes in, in the book of Colossians, at the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, triumphing over them by his death. 
Emmanuel becomes the suffering servant on the cross, becomes the warrior king, leading his enemies in defeat in triumphal procession. This is who Jesus is. He is the one who will ultimately destroy all evil because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one before whom every knee will bow. And we rejoice when we sing that glorious hymn that every knee will bow before Jesus. It's a source of joy. God will triumph. A day is coming when there will be no more struggles with sin. There'll be no more tsunamis. There'll be no more shootings in classrooms or in pavement restaurants. There'll be no more atheist celebrities making their ridiculous complaints against Almighty God. God will judge. God will triumph. Our God reigns. Salvation, therefore, means that we are saved from this judgment. That's good news. Secondly, saved for what? We are saved for the new creation. And this is chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. Here is some glorious good news in amongst this scene of utter devastation. Now, if we did a survey on what was good about being a Christian in in church this morning, we went around with a roving microphone, what's good about being a Christian? I imagine we get answers like, what, forgiveness, freedom to be the kind of person God wants me to be, fellowship with other Christians, the Holy Spirit to help me to live for Christ, joy, especially in worship, Now, all these things are true and wonderful and absolutely right. But when you think about it, all those things are the things of this world. And when Isaiah wants to describe the joy of salvation, he looks straight ahead to the new creation, to the next world, to heaven. So look at chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples and the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. The Lord has spoken. In other words, it's going to happen. You see, forgiveness, although wonderful, is always tempered by our sinfulness. Freedom to be the kind of person God wants us to be has to be balanced with the slavery we find to sin in our own lives, the the frustration that we aren't the people we should be. Fellowship with other Christians is often spoiled by sour relationships and our pride. The power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is there, but also we're very conscious of how far we have yet to go. And joy in the Christian life is tempered by disappointment and failure and bereavement. 
But Isaiah's picture of the new creation is one of unadulterated joy and total happiness that can never fade away. Verse 6, I think, is a sort of coronation feast. It's absolutely fantastic. All the jubilees and the carnivals and the banquets and the royal weddings and the fiestas and the parties and the laughter and the anniversaries and the Valentine's Days and the joy and the pleasure of a thousand years pale into insignificance compared to the splendor and the glory of the feast of heaven. He has to use human language and human analogies just for us to begin to get our heads around it. So he uses the feast language, rich food, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. And for wine buffs, this won't be your warm, cheap, headache-inducing Chardonnay. This is the 2,000 pounds a bottle Chateau Lafitte, 1947. No cheap cuts of meat at this banquet. Filet mignon, please. And I'm sure that the veggie option will be pretty good too. And none of us will have to worry about cholesterol or the bathroom scales. It's a coronation feast. We can't begin to describe how wonderful it's going to be, but it will be wonderful. And the host is none other than the Lord Almighty, verse 6. He's both the host and he's the chef. On this mountain, the Lord will prepare a feast of rich food. Forget your celebrity chefs and your British bake-offs. The Lord Almighty is the, is the chef. He's preparing the meal. Forget your Buckingham Palace garden parties and your Chilton firehouse, which I read about in the Evening Standard, I hasten to add. I haven't been to either. This party is on this mountain, verse 6. God's holy hill, Zion, the city of God. This is a heavenly banquet that will never end. There won't be a tinge of regret. Because this is a banquet that is not spoiled by death. Look at verses 7 and 8. Note the repeated use of the word all in those verses. Verse 6, it's a feast for all peoples. The shroud of death enfolds all peoples. How often I've been to the most joyous wedding and there's been a tearful taste to absent friends. I wish my dad could have been here to see this day, but he's not. Not so in heaven. The shroud of death affects us all, but the Lord Almighty will destroy death for us all. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever, a complete reversal of the effects of the fall. And it happens, verse 6, on this mountain. And Isaiah is looking ahead to a specific place where this will be achieved, a hill in Jerusalem. Actually, a hill just outside Jerusalem. So Emmanuel will achieve this victory in Jerusalem. And Isaiah 53 tells us that this victory will be won by the suffering servant. The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the punishment that brought us peace. This coronation, therefore, gives way to a glorious celebration in verse 9. 
in that day, that day when we sit down at the heavenly banquet and we are perfectly free from all sin and we're perfectly in the presence of God, in that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. We aren't there yet. But because it's so certain, and it's the Lord Almighty who set all this up for us, that we can rejoice with the saints in heaven too, even through our tears. In fact, isn't a funeral, a Christian funeral, one of the most wonderful experiences? Of course we're sad to say goodbye to our loved ones. But it's a a resounding reminder that death is not the end, that death does not have the last word that those who trust in Christ, who look to the Lord Almighty and all he achieved on that hill, on that mountain outside Jerusalem, we won't be cut off. We'll be welcomed. So the coronation gives way to glorious celebration. We mustn't underestimate how wonderful salvation is. Jesus saves us from judgment. It will be awesome and terrible. But Jesus also saves us for a new creation. A perfect existence from God, free from all that spoils this world. So, verse 9, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are the holy, righteous, and just judge, that all your ways are perfect. We thank you that you are perfect justice. And we thank you, too, that you made it possible for those who turn to you, who look to your son dying on that mountain outside Jerusalem, dying for us. You made it possible for us to be forgiven and accepted and perfectly with you forever. Please may we be glad and rejoice in your salvation. Amen.